Hello, everyone, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. We're going to be talking about each episode of Star Trek in chronological order. So at this point, we've started with Enterprise, and we're going to be taking a look not only at the episodes themselves, but what the world was like when they were originally broadcast. And then we also like to take a deeper dive into some concept or element of the show and something that catches our eye. And you're wondering, whose eyes am I talking about? I'm talking about my eyes. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer, and I write some sci-fi, and I write picture books. And with me is my brother, Matthew. He's the tech guru and main inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging, emerging tech and its impact on our lives. So today, we are going to be talking about Episode 9, Civilization. Matt, this episode was directed by Mike Vijar. It was written by Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong. They're a writing team. They write a number of episodes of Enterprise coming up, and they also wrote for Voyager. This episode aired on November 14th, 2001, and was viewed by 7.14 million people. And Matt, I know you're wondering, what was the world <laughs> like when this episode aired? What was it like, Sean? <laughs> Do you want to guess about the uh, top song at the time? Uh, it was mm. not "Fallen" by Alicia Keys. It wasn't. It was not. We finally, uh. we finally turned the page on "Fallen." No disrespect to Miss Keys, but this but, week, but good we riddance. New, yeah, but good riddance. <laughs> We've had "Fallen" for a, quite a while, but now we are able to say that at this point, when this episode aired, "I'm Real" by Jennifer Lopez was the number one song. Oh, J-Lo. And that song featured Ja Rule. So there must have been some murder in that song. <laughs> For the second week in a row, Monsters, Inc. was the top movie. And just mind-boggling numbers, its second week at the box office, it put another $45 million into the bank. Oof. So. Pixar at the peak of their power. Peak of their power. <laughs> yeah. Doing no wrong. And... Monsters, Inc. I mean, it's a classic. Absolute classic. The most watched show the week this episode aired was ER. And for any listeners who don't know what ER is, it's a little medical drama. It took place in Chicago. And it suffered through with only 27 million viewers this week, which means it only had 20 million more than <laughs> Star Trek <right>. Enterprise. <laughs> Which of these two shows was more popular? <laughs> it's not even close. And in the New York Times, some of the headlines include rebel forces in control as Taliban retreats. This is in Afghanistan, of course, part of the after effect of 9-11. And it's only been about two months. And the U.S. at this point is fully supporting the rebel forces who were fighting the, the Taliban at that point. Also in the news, Bush and Putin agreed to limit nuclear weapon stockpiles and Bush decided that military, not civilian courts would try terrorists. And of course that was the lead in to using Guantanamo as a prison and the future, um, Stories that would come out of Guantanamo and the decision to use military and civilian courts is something we will be seeing in the future. 
so Matt, the other thing about the other thing about that is yeah. that I find interesting is I brought this up before, but it's like all this horrible stuff was happening in the real world when this was aired, and there's always a lag time between what's happening in society and then artistic endeavors, and mm-hmm. so it's going to be f- interesting to see next season as we start talking about those episodes, yeah. how what we're talking about today affects the show going into seasons two, three, and beyond. Yeah. This is, uh, you touch on something um, that actually did come up in my research on this show, which is that this episode, while it was being filmed, production was halted for a day in response to the September 11th attacks. So this is the first episode. And then that would have been being made at the time, at the time of the attacks. The next episode would be, of course, the first one to be fully produced post 9-11. So what we've seen in the first eight episodes is that's the pre nine 11 world. And Mm -hmm. we are going to see a, I think a fairly quick transition Mm -hmm. uh, as we, as we get to the halfway mark of enterprise, I I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how there might be some subtle repercussions in the artistic endeavors here, as you point out. And then of course, season two has a very different flavor. So Matt, you want to give us the synopsis of this episode? Sure. Enterprise investigates a pre-industrial civilization of about 500 million people, and they discover that there's another warp-capable species among the unsuspecting inhabitants. And after Captain Archer, Commander Tucker, Ensign Sato, and Sub-Commander T'Pol arrive, they discover a local scientist who believes that a newly arrived merchant is causing a sickness in the town. So on to the episode. This is one of the episodes where we actually have a date. And of course, at this point in Enterprise, they are promoting the idea that star dates were not yet utilized within the star, within the star Trek universe. So we have a date of July 31st, 2151. And we start off with the Enterprise, uh, the, the, the opening scene I thought was an interesting one setting a little bit of a humorous note mm-hmm. for the episode of everybody in the command staff is they're starting their day. The captain shows up. He's like, so what do we have going on? And they throw out a bunch of arguably boring, boring things, <laughs> which of course mundane. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to me, when they're talking about like, here's a cluster of neutron stars, I'm just like neutron stars. <laughs> I got excited about every single boring thing they talked about. But the the last thing that they mentioned is they found a Minshara class planet and it appears to have inhabitants and Archer very knowingly glances at T'Pol and gives her a little, you might have put that one at the top of your list. Uh, a nice moment in the episode of trying to show some of the camaraderie that's building. And this episode has a couple of moments like that where I think yeah. that they've, in this episode, they pick up on some of the elements of previous ones and kind of give the characters a little bit of room to kind of wink at each other. Uh, not literally winking, but giving each other moments of we're getting to know each other. We're getting to work together as a crew. And I thought that was nice. Um, yeah, I agree. I, th- I had the same note watching the episode was the opening. I thought was really a nice humorous moment. And the fact that, you can imagine one of the crew suggesting to Paul, we should hold this one off for the captain to Paul yeah. going along with it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's just fun to show that they all have a camaraderie building. 
Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the discussion. I think that overall this episode is a little flat. It's Mm. very, it feels a little bit of a paint by numbers episode. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of the, a lot of the, the content of it is stuff that Star Trek has done not only before, but a lot. This is a recurring storyline of the less, uh, advanced civilization, a crew having to get involved, knowing something that this less civilized people don't understand about radiation or poison or something. Mm -hmm. And then being accused of being the cause and, and the tensions rising out of, of suspicions from, from a less advanced culture. We've seen that in pretty much every single Star Trek series, there are a couple of episodes of Next Generation that pop to mind very quickly. Um, but what I think that this episode does for Enterprise in particular is it's really the first time that this crew gets to do this kind of thing. Yes. And they keep making the point that it's the first time that any human ship has been able to do this kind of thing. So right off the bat, they they have the debate of whether or not to go to the planet. And T'Pol is very quick and within you know the same rhythms do of previous episodes. Yep. That is not standard protocol. You don't go down to a planet that you don't know. And Archer's response, we're out here for a reason. The other, uh, the other yeah. nuance to that that I really liked was in episodes one through three, that kind of time frame of the show, you know that the human characters would have immediately been like, why are the Vulcans trying to hold us back? But that never came up in the conversation. And what I liked was that Archer listened to T'Pol. He basically said, no, we're going down, but what can we do to, you know, not cause an impact? Cause right. she had a point. So let's disguise ourselves. So it's like, I thought it was interesting how he listened to her and nothing came up about you know, Vulcans being Vulcans. <laughs> yeah, quit just, staying in our way. Yeah. Right. It was, it was more like, okay, you got a point, but we can get around that. So it was, it was an interesting little nuance to it that I liked. So they visit the, the planet and it's the Akali is the, the city that they're visiting and they take along Ensign Sato. They take along again, they very early in the series, there's a great scene where Archer argues with Trip about the, chief engineer's job is to be in charge of the ship's engine you need to be here Mm -hmm. ever since that episode i think it's been six episodes in a row where trip is a part of the away team going down to planets and doing things that have nothing to do with engineering he's Mm -hmm. along again for the ride here i don't know why but to paul also goes along again another interesting choice given the fact that they point out, oh, these inhabitants of this planet all seem to look like humans just with a couple of things on them. And they take a Vulcan down who's got pointy ears sticking out of her hair. <clears throat> but nevertheless, they go down to the Akali city and Sato in particular begins to notice that there are individuals who appear to be sick. There seems to be an illness where it's skin lesions and they discover that there is an energy signature that doesn't make sense on the planet. It's supposed to be a pre-industrial civilization. They spot things like sailing ships on the water and the cities all look uh, fairly rustic. I would say, you know, something along the lines of like sometime in the 1600s mm-hmm. in, in Europe would be comparable. And so when they pick up 
neutrino emissions, which would be from much more advanced technology. They can't figure out where it's coming from. They track it down to a antique shop, basically, and they force their way in. And it's there that Trip and Archer meet a woman named Rian. And Rian is threatening them with what looks like a very cool little mini crossbow <laughs> she's got. And she's she's confronting them over the issue that th- she believes that they are involved with something having to do with strange crates that are being taken to and from the curio shop. And she's looking for the cause of the illness. Paul manages to rescue the captain and trip. Uh, one of the few times, and I like this, that it seemed like the writing in this episode was pushing back on the idea of damsels in distress. There's mm-hmm. still a couple of moments where Archer is much too of much too much of a like, oh, you you stay here, I'll go fight the bad guy, particularly toward the end of the episode. But having to Paul rescue them in that moment, I thought was a a nice a nice touch. So they come back and they revisit the ship the next the the curio shop the next day and when they are there they meet a man named Garrus and Garrus uh here was a place where in the writing i thought it was just a little too um on the nose they Garrus doesn't do much of a good job in hiding the fact that he's up to stuff <laughs> No, it seems, he's, did you get the sense obvious. that when they walked in, he was immediately just like, well, I'm doing shady things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He was a little bit of a mustache trolling villain for us, the viewer, and even for them. It was just a plain as day that he was up to no good. And I think that part of it for me, and of course, you, know, you look back in time and you, and you can see all sorts of things, um, with a different lens, the, the Garros is played by Wade Williams and he's a character actor. You've seen him in movies and TV shows. He usually plays a guy who's mm-hmm. up to no good. He's, yep. he's very often playing the guy who the hero maybe butt heads with because this guy is the, the one who thinks he knows what's best or in some cases he's just the outright villain. But Casting a Wade Williams in this role is immediately a giveaway that, okay, he's up to, he's up to something. Yep. So they subtly, uh, try and figure out, you know, what's going on with this Garros guy. They scan him. They discover he's not actually from the planet. He's not an indigenous person on this planet. He's, he reveals himself to be a Malurian and, there is, he makes the claim that what he's done is he was a part of a research team that basically fell in love with the the culture of this planet. He decided to stay behind. And that what he has is a power source that allows him to fabricate food and clothing. And Trip informs Archer later that he's got so much power going that he could be feeding and clothing the entire continent if he wanted to, that it doesn't add up, that he would have a power source like that. So they continue to want to be, to to get into the shop and figure out what's going on. And meanwhile, as they 
continue to talk to Rianne, Archer revisits her and she very quickly becomes an ally and he brings to Paul along with him and to Paul very subtly. I really liked this scene in particular yeah. as well. It was one of the first scenes where they've had a number of times where Archer and Trip look at each other and pick up clues from each other. There was the Andorian incident in particular where Trip understands what Archer is looking for when Archer begins to make grandiose claims about how boring the monastery is and trip picks up on, Oh yeah, yeah. And knows, okay, Archer is looking for something, something's happening. Yep. And this episode has that same sort of moment between Paul and Archer where it is a nicely subtle moment of Archer coming in and saying, Oh, I've got a friend with me. She's also a scientist and she's interested in looking at your setup. And then Paul goes through the room and is subtly taking scans, copying notes and testing water doing and materials. <laughs> yeah. And doing all of these things. Yeah. And then when she's got all the information she needs, she, she's like, okay, I'm, I'm heading out. I'll see you guys later. And she goes back to the ship and shares all this with the flocks. Well, well actually she, <laughs> she tries to get the captain to go with her. Like we should go. And he's basically like, I'm going to stay here and have tea with her. And there's a, this is another one of those character moments I really liked. It's like, she basically does the, Vulcan eyebrow raise of like, really? You're just going to stay here and put this more at risk just to have tea? And I loved her comment of a, enjoy your tea. And it's like this really kind of snide remark as she walks out the door. I thought that was a really nice little moment between the two of them. So when she gets back to the ship with the information that she's gathered, she shares it with Phlox. And I also particularly, again, anytime Phlox is in the show, I'm going to say is awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I loved his discussion of, of what a, how this woman's scientific method is, he's surprised at how advanced it is given where the society's advancements mm -hmm. are lacking. And he says, if she was raised on Vulcan or earth, she might've turned into a very good doctor and because her methods are so strong. And I think that they give Rian a lot of opportunities to demonstrate that in moments of action as well. Mm -hmm. When she's doing things, they have a nice moment where she's making notes and she's talking to herself as she's making her notes. It's clear that she's got a scientist's uh, take on data is what's important. Data is what allows me to form connections between these things. So I think that the, the writing not only around her and about her is interesting and entertaining. I think that they gave that actress some interesting things to, to actually pull out of the performance. So Dr. Flox looks at the materials that have been gathered by T'Pol and he determines that there is a chemical, which is titracyanite 622. It is used in machinery as a lubricant and it has gotten into the groundwater and he is absolutely convinced that this is the cause of the lesions and the suffering that the people in the city are having. One of the things that Rian points out in her research is that the infections appear to be clustered. It's all located in a nucleus around the curio shop and it's expanding slowly outward, but it has limits so that this Rian's research is like, this is not contagious. It is not uh, airborne. She can't figure out how it's being conducted, but it's within a certain area. 
And so now that they know, okay, we have to get into this shop, um, they, they go at night and they are watching. And this is, this was a moment where I was both part of me was thrown by this scene because again, it felt so (laughs) something we've seen before, but I also thought, okay, this is, this is like, they're giving Archer a Kirk moment. (laughs) Can I just say what my note says? Yeah. The kiss question mark. Really? Question mark. Very Kirk. (laughs) That's exactly what I wrote down. I was like, this whole scene felt dissonant for the show. Yeah. The time. Like it's being made in the, you know, 21st century here, people. This is not 1960s. This is, it felt so out of place for what was going on. Um, And then on top of that, the excuse that he uses when his, he has a, you haven't gotten to it yet, but his uh, translating device breaks down, stops working. So he can't understand what she's saying. And so he kisses her to distract her while he tries behind her back to fix it. And before it. you go on with your description of what was happening, I have to say, I really like the fact that his translator stopped working. Yes. I thought but, that was a very nice touch. But that in itself, to me, raised a whole other problem with just, this is a problem with Star Trek in general, mm-hmm. which is, obviously, there's a reason why everybody kind of looks humanoid because... For Earth people making a TV it's show. It's a TV show, yeah. Um, and it's cheaper to have people with face stuff on than CG. But the idea of the translators and being able to hide as a natural person in the society when you basically have an iPhone that is translating the stuff for you in real time, every time you talk, it's going to sound like it's coming from the device. It's right. like you're not going to be able to hide that. It's like right. it's ridiculous that here he is trying to hide the fact that his translator is broken. And it's like she would have known from the moment you said your first word because it would have come out in English and then been translated into something else. Yeah, that's how it would have to work. So this whole aspect of Star Trek is something where you basically have to divorce logic from, OK, we got to give them some creative leeway here or else the show couldn't happen. Right. But th- this is one thing that's always bothered me. And this scene in particular just shined a light on that issue with the translators that they should have shot away from because as soon as they brought that up as the linchpin for the kiss and that whole little moment it just made you remember oh that's such a stupid concept the translators is a stupid concept it's it's moments like that where what (laughs) happens is hard sci-fi and adventure soft sci-fi come colliding head to head Mm -hmm. you have adventure sci-fi which you can set up any sort of rule and as long as you stay consistent with your rule your audience will follow along Mm -hmm. star wars explosions in space make sounds yep there would be no sounds in space but they do that they do it consistently ships fly around they make zooming noises laser bolts and explosions all have sounds in space and everybody's just like i like star wars and then in Star Trek, they are in an attempt to create a hard sci-fi moment of how could they understand one another? Some writer implemented the idea of, well, they've got these devices. The devices could work as an instant translation device. That then runs headlong yeah. into the adventure aspect of you have a show which is built around the idea that sometimes these, these people on these starships are going to go into cultures and pretend to be locals. So 
they are hiding behind the corner. And as you were saying, they're hiding behind the corner. The translator stops working. And what does he do? He kisses her. He kisses her. <laughs> he pulls a Kirk. Yes. And he begins to muddle with the, the translation device over her shoulder. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, okay, if you're going to sexually assault somebody, if you're going to kiss somebody in an unwanted moment like that, the only good case scenario for that moment is if he wants to kiss her. Mm-hmm. It's made worse by the fact that he's actually just doing it so that he can monkey around with his cell phone. Yes. But he ends up getting it to work again and then awkwardly says, are you okay? She says, I'm fine. And there's a moment where she's clearly giving the, oh, I'm better than fine. That was great. And then he comes up with the excuse in that moment of there was somebody walking by. And I don't know. There was something about that. Like, okay, if you're going to go Kirk, go all Kirk. Don't go yeah. half Kirk. You know, the whole, like he could have kissed her. Are you all right with that? Yes, I'm fine. Okay, I couldn't help myself. Like, you know, like. The whole, the whole, the whole scene in this day and age is just made me feel icky. <laughs> be the best way to put yeah. it. So, yeah. So they end up witnessing, uh, they end up witnessing a, a man leaving the shop. He's got a cart filled with crates. He takes them to the forest. They follow him all the way there. And he leaves them in the woods and communicates in, again, a language now that is not translated. So this is clearly not a person from the, the local community. And once he leaves and they go to investigate what's in the crates, suddenly a light from above comes down and a ship is approaching and it's a craft that then takes those with a tractor beam up into its hold. And the guy who dropped them off clearly at this point, I'm assuming has been radioed by the ship and said, there's two people here going through these crates. He circles back around and a fight breaks out now in the woods where Archer is fighting this, this Malarian and, I thought it was a nice touch that there is a moment where he manages to peel the artificial skin from mm-hmm. this guy's face, revealing some sort of reptilian lizard skin underneath, never fully removing it. I thought not fully removing it was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Um, They're implying it's a Suliban, I think. I don't think so. It's He's described it like as Malorian. It looked like Suliban's skin to me, but I don't know. I, I, if that's revisited in the future, if there's another episode like that, but I didn't, I didn't assume that because they're, they referred to themselves as Malurian and they were doing something that was specifically no, but, mining no, so I mean, an isotope. It looked like they were profiteers right. and like they were selling this stuff and they could have been selling it to the, the Suliban. It was how I interpreted it because it looked like Suliban's skin when he peeled it up. Interesting. Bit. Cause I didn't, I didn't make that same leap. I may have made it incorrectly, but that's what I interpreted as rewatching it again. So what they discover after they, they fight the guy in the woods, they end up, uh, Archer does have his moment of like, I'm the dashing hero. You stay safe. He goes off into the woods, fights the guy, beats him up. And then they head back to the curio shop and they manage to get in using a device they pulled off of the guy in the woods. 
and they finally get in to see what the reactor is. And they discover that the reactor is powering a mining operation where it's a deep mining operation and they are taking up viridium, which is described as often being used in creating weapons. And again, the writing in this episode has moments where I think it does hit nice, nice moments. And this was one of them where they are in the room with the, with the power device and they're trying to figure out how to shut it down. And Archer and Rion argue about whether it's the yellow button or the blue button. And (laughs) it is a deciphering of just symbols and colors on a screen. And I thought that it, it, was a very nice moment of very often you have in Star Trek, people run in and start using computers and they know inherently how to use any computer anywhere at any time. Yep. And this, I thought was a nice moment of like, well, no, I think it's, I think it's the blue button because look at that, that's blue and it's the same color blue. So I bet it's the blue button. And Archer makes his point of arguing basically from a perspective of, Hey, who, is the guy who uses computers. You're from the less civilized people. Yeah. And he turns out to be wrong. Yeah. So they get trapped in the room and Garros shows up and is basically like, okay, you guys are going to, you guys are done. Garros communicates with the enterprise claims that, that Archer is dead and tells the enterprise that they got to leave. And then meanwhile, he's telling Archer, I will let you go if you simply promise to not come back. And I think it's pretty clear that Garros is not going to stand by that. He is, in fact, planning on killing Archer if he can just get out, get him out of the room. But Archer refuses and Archer and Rianne uh, both work to figure a way out of the, out of the situation that they're in. And they manage to get out to the street and this is where an interesting phaser battle breaks out in the middle of a street with people who've never seen phasers or high level tech before. And they have what is basically just a, a, a a large um, brawl in the middle of the town square. And meanwhile, the enterprise is having to fight off a Malurian ship in orbit. And there was something very strange about the entire sequence with the Malurian ship. It seemed very brief and cobbled together. Did you have a sense of it feeling like there wasn't a lot of there there? You mean with the whole scene, the fight between them? Yeah. I didn't get that sense at all. In fact, the note I wrote to myself was, I actually like this scene because of how to Paul was portrayed in the scene. It was really cool to see her jump into action commander and basically with a superior force fighting her, she was able to basically outmaneuver them and outsmart them and did some really kind of, it reminded me a little bit of watching like world war two movies with submarines fighting with Mm -hmm. how she was trying to kind of come at them in a way that they wouldn't expect and to do something that was unexpected that gave them the edge. Um, like detonating the the uh that device close by so it knocked their shields down so they could actually kind of knock them out of commission. Yeah, they use the power they use the power plant. They they end up being able to beam the power plant 
from the underground location into the path of the enemy ship and use one of their torpedoes. They know that their torpedoes can't penetrate the the shields of this Malurian ship. So they use the power plant beamed into space and then blow it up and it disables the ship and they're able to take out its shields and its weapon array. And when they communicate back to uh, Archer, okay, we've got the ship under control and Archer and Rian are on the street in their street brawl. And Rian is the one to save the day when she points out, okay, there's a container over there. That lamp is got to have at least a liter of flammable oil in it. And Archer is able to detonate it. And the explosion of the lamp is what disables Garros and his other men on the planet surface. Garros disappears, beams himself up to his ship and runs away. And in the original series, Star Trek, that kind of ending would have been like, we won. And Mm -hmm. in 21st century Enterprise Star Trek, it seemed like, how is that the ending? Yeah. How is it the ending <laughs> that Garros just beams away and they just kind of trust that it's all over? Yeah. And I really didn't like the very last scene with Archer telling Rian, yeah, we've communicated with the Vulcans and the Vulcans are going to stop by every once in a while to make sure everything's okay. Yeah. It just seemed totally hand wavy. Yeah. Like, like, and blah, 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 blah. Hey, don't was, worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what if what if these pirates come back and continue to do these terrible things to us? I'm like, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. The the uh the two things I want to bring up. I, I actually just looked up the picture of the unmasking, and you are correct. It's not Sulaban. That is the got it has to be the Malurians. Um but the other thing I wanted to bring up about that fight scene again, something happened in that fight scene that really annoyed me and it was how insubordinate trip was yeah because when she's basically outgunned outmanned they can't take the ship on and they say get out of here and she goes okay we're leaving and trip's like "Uh -uh," and basically like tells the engineering crew to turn off the engine don't let her do this and it was kind of like there's no ramifications for that insubordinate to a point where he would be drummed out he yeah he basically yeah. was trying to commit mutiny and it was he this is not the first time he's done that and it's one of those if this you know a one time thing it's like uh, maybe you can hand wave that away but trip mm-hmm. keeps doing this and at this point it was like when he did it, it was so egregious in a in a tense battle with a with a superior force he could have gotten everybody killed by doing what he did and there's they never bring it up Nobody talks about it. There's no ramifications. And it was kind of like, really? Come on. Come on. Sloppy writing. It's, it's out. It, to me, it felt too out there, even for the character of Trip, for doing that. Yeah. There was another moment of sloppy writing for me where at the very end, Archer, I like the dynamic that Archer has with Rianne. Mm-hmm. And the kiss at the very end didn't bother me in mm-hmm. the way that the kiss on the street did. When at the very end, he makes the point of saying, this has been a very impactful moment for me and it's a very Kirk moment. It's a, he's leaning in very obviously he's going to kiss her. They kiss and they have a moment where he says to her, it's probably for the best if you keep the details of all of this to yourself. And she says, who would believe me? Mm -hmm. They literally had a phaser fight in the middle of a town square. (laughs) There are dozens yeah. of people 
they saw people her. hold up st- what would look like sticks in their hand and shoot fire bolts or lightning that blew things up in the center of town square. I think people would believe her. Mm-hmm. This is a moment where, again, going back to previous episodes where they don't have a prime directive but they keep hinting at elements and to Paul keeps saying, you don't know what you might do to their culture. You don't know what you might do to their culture. This moment would resonate throughout their culture. This mm-hmm. would be a tale that would get blown up into a major impact. This would be a uh, Noah's Ark level event where at some point in the past there was a flood yes. and then people – hold it again and again to the point where it was Noah building the ark and taking the animals and that's how they survived this moment. Yes, there were, there were gods that came among us and threw lightning bolts at one another in the middle of a town square. So I'm sorry, Rian, people are going to believe you. Yep. So like I said, at the beginning, I feel like there were moments of some nice writing on very personal levels um, between Rian and Archer and a couple of moments between the crew. It's one of those episodes, unfortunately, where there are certain members of the crew who might as well have been on leave. Like Meriwether doesn't really do anything. Um, you end up with a couple of moments with flocks, but for the most part, it's an Archer focused episode. And it felt very much like they were taking a moment to say, let's give him a Kirk like storyline let's give him a little bit of swagger and a little bit of he's playing by the seat of his pants he's got no rule book as opposed to what kirk usually does kirk Mm -hmm. usually goes into this situation knowing of the prime directive but bending it and breaking it and in this case it's very much the learning experience of well maybe why should we have a prime directive but it's still a very kirk-like story um and i also felt like there were some neat little details uh, buried within it, which include this episode, as I mentioned, was written by uh, Phyllis Strong and Mike Sussman. And Sussman included the Malurians as the bad guys in this episode. The Malurians are a species that gets wiped out in the original series. In the episode, The Changeling, where there is the nomad satellite that is looking for intelligent life and wiping it out. And the original crew in the original series confronts it and has to take care of it. We'll be seeing that in the far, far future when we get to that episode. But when they, that episode starts, it is with the sudden disappearance of the Malurians. And when the original crew reaches that system, they find that all the inhabitants of the Malurian system are dead because of nomad. And so I thought that was an interesting little Easter egg that Sussman (laughs) made the Malurians bad guys. So things for me that worked included the, I did like the fight on the street. I thought it was a nice touch to have a little bit of action like that. I thought that the fight in the woods, again, very Kirk-like back and forth. But the things that didn't work for me, it, it, it felt a very samey episode to a lot of other stories that they've done in Star Trek. Um, Of course, 
viewing this in chronological order, this is now the first one of that type. So <laughs> this is the first time we're seeing a captain be Kirk-like. Um, yeah, this episode was not bad. It was not great. It was kind of just, it was, I thought it did a better job with character development for this specific show because we've been so used to this kind of plot. Like you said, paint mm-hmm. by numbers is a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. But as you also just put just now, this is now technically chronologically the first time we've seen it in theory. <laughs> so yeah. okay, there's that. Yeah. One of the things that stood out for me and that I wanted to talk a little bit about in a deeper dive is the issue around water contamination and the other episodes that sprang to mind, like um, in next generation, thine own self uh, is a story with data where data has a radioactive material, but he's been, he's been damaged in a way that is wiped his memory of who he is. And he's in a less advanced environment and the radioactive material is making people around him sick and people begin to assume it's him. He's doing something. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time that I can recall there being a Star Trek story that focused on it being a contaminant in the water like this. And it got me thinking about issues of water contamination and water health worldwide as we face them now. And this is something that's been coming up more and more. It's something that's very important in the news. We of course have here in the U S we have Flint, Michigan, which still is suffering from lead in its water system and the people who live there having to focus entirely on bottled water for consumption and limitation of use of water because of the possibility of lead poisoning. And I just wanted to share in this deeper dive some key facts that are from the World Health Organization. This is from an article from the World Health Organization in 2019, and it's focusing on research that was done in 2017. So these numbers are a little out of date, but I think that they still stand up as far as a key way of measuring water health worldwide. These facts include the following. 71% of the global population uses a safely managed drinking water service that is one located on premises, available when needed, and free from contamination. That, of course, means you flip that number, 29% of the population Mm. does not have that. 90% of the global population, that's 6.8 billion people, used at least a basic service. A basic service is an improved drinking water source with a round trip of 30 minutes to collect water. So if you think of that, 90% of the world population has a basic service, but that means that those people are having to travel 30 minutes to get drinking water. 785 million people lack even a basic drinking water service including 144 million people who are dependent on surface water. And of course, surface water is becoming a major issue now as we are seeing more and more frequent droughts. Globally, at least 2 billion people use a drinking water source contaminated with feces. So Mm. this is the overlap between drinking water sources and waste sources. So when people are having to use areas close to where they live and find water sources as close as they can to where they live, the fecal contamination is going to be much, much easier. Contaminated water can transmit diseases such as diarrhea, cholera, dysentery, typhoid, and polio. And contaminated water is estimated to cause 
almost a half a million diarrhea deaths each year. By 2025, it's estimated that half of the world's population will be living in water-stressed areas. And in the least developed countries, 22% of healthcare facilities have no water service, 21% no sanitation service, and 22% no waste management services. If any of our listeners are interested in trying to help with water health worldwide, water.org is a charity that you can go to. This is a charity that was started by Matt Damon. And you can go and you can provide support there. And you can also read more about what clean water projects around the world look like. It's funny that we're talking about this right now because we just recorded an episode of Still Be Determined, our other podcast, which is a follow-up on my YouTube channel. And we just talked about how I was saying that desalination plants are something that we desperately need and we think are going to be becoming more and more prevalent over the next 10, 20, 30 years, precisely for this reason, is drinking water, fresh water, safe water is only going to get more and more needed in time. The water issue in this story was clearly just the end to the action. It mm-hmm. was part of the plot element to just drive the story. But I thought it was interesting that 20 years after the fact, as I'm watching it now, it stood out as a major issue for me. And this is, as you mentioned, we had just had this discussion around your episode around desalinization. And at the same time, I hadn't yet thought of that in the context of your video. This was a freestanding, as I was watching this episode, it kept coming up into my head of of the impact of clean water on this community and the reality of that as a thing we deal with day to day. So it really is a strange coincidence and a sign of, of an issue that is something that is a real thing that people can uh, have a hand in helping deal with by visiting a charity such as water.org. And one final thought on that, this episode also touched on environmental issues where for-profit tends to blind people to the impact, the negative impacts of these environmental problems on people in a certain region. So mm-hmm. it was the malarians profiting off of these people getting sick. Who cares? We're making tons of money. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this anyway. And that's what causes a lot of the issues we're seeing in our world today where for-profit companies kind of sidestep or sweep under the rug the downsides of what they're doing contaminating water sources because they're making a buck. Right. But they didn't drive and it home in the episode. It was very subtle. <laughs> it was it's it's so face. subtle and it's and I think it's because at the time they weren't they weren't trying to make that the issue. They weren't yes. they was this and I think that the episode might have benefited a little bit from a little bit more of a topic highlighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um the one moment where they do make an argument of Archer saying like you're hurting these people and the response is there's 500 million of them all over this planet what's a few thousand people getting sick. Exactly. Yep. And that could have been uh, highlighted a little more. One of the ways it could have been highlighted a little bit more is by actually having them interact with some of the sick people. Yeah. The sick people are referred to, but they never appear on screen. And it might have been made a more personal thing. The Rian's character refers to one of the first people to become sick and die was her brother. That's what's driven her. Um, I couldn't help but think at the end of the episode, 
couldn't it have benefited from the idea of what if her brother wasn't yet gone? Mm -hmm. What if he was sick and they were also actively dealing with the fact that, okay, here's this sick person that we get to know and like and see the face of what this contamination looks like. Right. So next time we will be looking at the episode Fortunate Son. Matt, do you have any guesses as to what Fortunate Son might be about? Probably a son who's fortunate. Mm. That's probably a little on the nose, but I'll let it pass. <laughs> Before we sign off, Matt, do you have anything you'd like to remind our listeners about that you have going on? Uh, to check out the Still to be Determined podcast, which Sean and I do. It's our other show that's the follow-up to my YouTube channel. We do a lot of discussion around environmental issues and sustainable technologies. And as for me, you can check out my website. It's seanferrell.com. And you can look for my books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any bookstore. I strongly encourage checking out your local library or your local bookstores as those are close and dear to my heart. If you have any comments or corrections, please do reach out. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes, or you can just drop below this video if you're watching it on YouTube, and you can comment directly below. I'd like to pose a closing question for our viewers and listeners. What did you think of Archer's Kirk turn? Did you find it as kind of squirmy in my chair as Matt and I appear to have? Or did you actually think, finally, somebody's being a Kirk? Let us know what you think. Please remember to subscribe to like the episode and to share it widely with your friends and strangers and to come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Bye.